0: care for all rose bros can suck my balls fuck your reply guys please don't fuck your reply guys just listen to reply guys all right hello and welcome to reply guys the leftist
1: feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us
0: i'm kate willett i
1: am julia claire hello julia hello
0: Alright, so, you know, I'm Kate <laughs> But I don't want to beat her on the bush Too much longer here Julia is piping mad right now Uh, we did An interview with Eliza Orleans, which is a super cool interview That it's you so will good. for sure enjoy She's but amazing We were chatting a little bit after The show about, you know The likelihood of who Would be the next mayor of NYC And, uh we are talking about just, you know, how much name recognition Andrew Yang has and that he's somewhat likely to become the mayor of NYC. And then Julia just lost her shit and she's been waiting for this moment to let loose. So let's go. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, um, my version of losing my shit and letting loose is just, uh, it's, it's not going to be, the tone isn't going to be that much different than how I'm speaking now. But boy, I am extremely upset um i had a tweet about andrew yang go viral uh very but it you know it was just essentially that i've you know me saying that he's a a corporate technocrat yep who who, you know believes in a libertarian version of UBI. He is staunchly pro charter school. You know, nothing that you can't figure out about him from a cursory Google search. And I, I mean, my mentions were just flooded with his supporters. Of course. Um, (laughs) One of them DM'd me something honestly very funny, which is that he said, I bet your pussy is dry as fuck. And then he called me dog face. (laughs) Just <laughs> really made me laugh. Dry um, as
0: fuck with a
1: dog face pussy. With a dog face pussy. Um no, uh dry as fuck pussy with a dog face, uh, which is my new calling card. Basically, my I mean, my tweet said like, I've never seen a politician whose supporters so grievously misunderstand who their candidate is. Um and I really I I think that there is this this idea of of Andrew Yang as some sort of revolutionary, when really he is just someone like it happens every few years. He is a a man from the business world who comes into politics and says, "Hey, what if we ran government like a business?" As if we're not partially doing that already, and as if again, as if he was the first person to ever think of that. Um. I have never heard him criticize a corporation, a major corporation once in the same way that I've heard him criticize teachers unions. (laughs) Um, Again, the fact that he's so ardently pro charter school and thinks that one of the major problems of New York city is that it's not business friendly enough. Um, Yes. Maybe small businesses, but Um, you know, there's also, he's just been making so many statements that I think should completely disqualify him. Like in the beginning of his, when he, when he first announced, he was asked, why aren't you really living here? And he said, well, we have a small two bedroom apartment. So how could we do that? How could we possibly live in our small two bedroom apartment and, uh, have our kids do online school. It's like, yeah, that's what every New York parent has to, has to do, and they don't have the the luxury of opting out of that. Um, but today, there was a Politico article published about him. And before we get into that, I, I do want to say that there is a reason why Andrew Yang gets under my skin as much as he... As he does, and he had, like, longtime listeners of this show because will know.
0: Because you're a racist. Because I'm a because racist. Because you're a racist. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh,
1: first and foremost, absolutely. No question. Yes. Well, I mean, also, I am so fucking offended every time his libertarian-ass version of universal basic income is compared. People put up the picture of Martin Luther King with the, his quote about universal basic income Oh and I'm like, God. these these two are not the same.
0: No, it's shut not shut the, same, the yeah. fuck
1: up. I I just I hate um, the the reason why he gets under my skin to the degree that he does is that he his a lot of his supporters think that he is like a revolutionary. He, he's bringing a lot of like Silicon Valley lingo, like like he's disrupting the political the political complex. And he's not he is a business as usual corporate centrist,
0: yep he uh, maybe he's a little bit more libertarian, yeah, yeah,
1: but no, 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 he's he's completely he again it's like it's this it's the same way that Silicon Valley is not progressive, it's not actually progressive,
0: yeah, no, I completely agree, I mean. And uh, you know, our whole city is going to be a Hudson Yards man. I so. just,
1: I'm, I'm really, it, it, does upset me because I love, I love New York, and I care about this city, and this place is my home. And he's just coming in because he has the highest name recognition of everyone running, and sailing to the top of the polls again, because, you know, as was rightly pointed out. This race with with rank choice voting is all about name recognition, and i ho- I had hoped that it would even out as the race goes on. And as Andrew Yang continues to make these fucking idiotic statements, but it doesn't appear to be going that way. Um, you know, Andrew yang th- this this piece in Politico says how Yang charmed the right on his road to political stardom. He went on a number of podcasts that have a largely uh right wing base he uh and you know if you want to go there and defend progressive ideals. I have no problem with that, but that's not exactly what he did. He was just trying to kind of court right wing voters. It seemed he went on the Ben Shapiro show, the Joe rogan experience, uh Tucker Carlson Tonight. And the Rubin Report, hosted by Dave Rubin. Oh, yeah, we know
0: what the Rubin Report is.
1: Um, For
0: people who feel like they've just been, uh, they've lost their home in the woke left, and they had to interview Milo (laughs) Yiannopoulos. Absolutely. Um, I hate everyone. I just hate everything these days. I'm so upset. (laughs) Um,
1: And you know, Yang said that the Democratic Party needs to try to gravitate away from identity politics. And that's a stupid way to try to win elections. Okay, great. All politics, as we've discussed before, all politics are identity politics. And that is kind of a, I think those two sentences are this weird kind of like anti-woke dog whistle that I just don't I really don't think has any place in the modern democratic party. And I certainly wouldn't, I certainly don't want a mayor, any mayor of New York city to be uh, engaging in the
0: culture wars that way. But no, it's really stupid. I mean, my God, I'm just like, I don't know i realize that most people do not like spend their life thinking about you know the weaponization of identity politics or whatever i'm just i am so fucking sick of this it's like yeah obviously identity politics are weaponized sometimes and obviously we should do things to combat structural oppression and you know not be a fucking jerk in our language but i just I just feel so sick of this culture war shit. I just, I can't even handle it anymore. This guy that I was talking to on Hinge for a second was asking me what I thought of Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Like he wanted to like shit on it or something and I, I just unmatched him because I'm like I'm just so bored. <laughs> Like, I don't know Like, I just, it's like uh, I, Just so much Has fucking happened, like, it's so, so weird To, like, relitigate these issues all the time
1: This is actually part of my This is part of my ire Towards Andrew Yang Is that some people on the left Were fooled by him and were more Offended by Elizabeth Warren's Candidacy than they were his
0: Well, I also think, though, that Elizabeth Warren Was hey, Dramatically more popular candidate. I mean, like Elizabeth Warren. Well, you know, the Andrew Yang, I think, was he was hanging out at like one percent of the vote or no, something. No, okay, that's uh, okay. I mean,
1: I guess acting like he is in some way progressive, but she is like putting the two of them up against each other. I'm sorry, you gotta, I like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't stand Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I have been. Yeah, certainly. I've I've been more generous to her on this on this show, uh. But that I mean, of the two of them, yeah, you should be uh, you know, you shouldn't be more suspicious of Elizabeth Warren than you should be of Andrew Yang. I no, I
0: mean for sure. I guess I just don't. I mean, not, to me, it's like during the presidential <laughs> primary, like Andrew Yang didn't deserve as much attention as he got. He was like not popular, you know.
1: <laughs> I agree. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So all that is neither here nor there. Let's get into some of the things that he uh that he he said in this article. This is what he said. I wasn't actively involved in local politics and I was living in New York and as you know, New York is so blue that there isn't that much to be engaged with politically. That is so such an infuriating statement. Uh, and that's clearly just someone who just knows absolutely nothing about organizing and about New York City politics. Uh, just because a city is blue doesn't mean there is nothing to engage with. I think that's again you have to you only have to pay attention to New York City politics for like two minutes to realize that. Yeah, it's such an idiotic statement. Um, yeah,
0: answering it's like.
1: He's like an interloper, he's just some guy who swept in on his national profile I'm especially offended, again, because there are people who are known community leaders and organizers People who really do care about the city, like Diane Morales Who, you know, because she doesn't have a national profile and she doesn't have this name recognition Might not stand a chance against him yeah. Um. Look, I'm. You know. Uh. Great that he's for decriminalization of sex work and, uh, recreational drugs. Again, two two very over the plate libertarian views. He said, you know, he he said, "quote I'm no fan of big government. The larger an organization is, the more cumbersome and ridiculous it often gets."
0: Yeah, like just fucking it's- classic, like. Republican shit, I totally agree with you I know,
1: I just, I really I mean, and he also I think the way that he talks about automation is really it's indicative of the wrong way that a lot of politicians talk about automation um you know
0: oh there's nothing that we can do about it
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> he said and that's not true. Obviously, we control the technology and there are things that we can do. Um so he on uh on the the Rubin report, he said, "Quote, if you take these people who are working in fast food restaurants and these jobs get automated any, uh, away, and in my mind, they should be automated away. Trying to preserve these jobs is not where we should be going." Again, his campaign is like so much of his brand is like the Yang gang is humanity first. we love- like human capitalism, but it's this it's the same kind of corporate capitalism that we've seen over and over and over again. It's just got a shiny new paint job. Yep. It's just <sighs> i really i mean again, i hate I just think that a lot of his positions really have no place in the in the modern democratic party uh i having volunteered with the housing justice for all campaign for the last number of years you know i shudder to think i, I know that corporate landlords will be absolutely celebrating if he wins um again I, I think you know we have the most segregated public school some of the most segregated public schools in the country are New York cities. And, uh, you know, we've already seen that charter schools have not m- improved that problem. And someone who wants more of them is not going to solve that problem. I'm just, I'm at a loss. I'm really, it does really make me upset because I can't believe it is truly my worst nightmare that my, the person who inspired like Besides Bloomberg, I can't think of of anyone in that, that race who made me angrier. Um, and mostly just because he was, like, tricking a lot of people who should be voting for l- lefty candidates, basically. I think that's, like, the people who are voting for Bloomberg know what they're getting. I just think that Andrew Yang is fooling people. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, everything in New York is going to become... <laughs>
0: Hudson Yards, the baby. Hudson Yards. Which, and- for if you don't live in New York, it's like just this, it's a fucking mall slash housing development for rich people. I don't know, look. But okay, here here we are, right? We do have some, there is some optimism on the horizon. I'm very excited about our guest today, uh, Eliza Orleans, who is running for the DA in Manhattan. And she's a public defender. Uh, And it's... Full, fully pro decrim for sex work. Um, she wants to, fucking prosecute Wall Street. Um, prosecute the cops. She's really cool.
1: She's great. I I'm very as disheartened as I am by Andrew Yang's great performance in the polls. I am equally, if not more, heartened by by her candidacy, and um, I think that more public defenders should fall in her footsteps and those of, of, of public defenders before her and, and make runs for these, for these big offices. And I, I really hope she wins.
0: Awesome. Let's get into our interview with Eliza. Here we go. Just listen to Reply Guys. All right. Welcome back to Reply Guys. We are here with Eliza Orleans. Welcome to the show, Eliza. So happy to be here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So you're running for the D.A. of Manhattan. Yes, I am. Okay. so what is that? I mean, I have like a vague concept of what the D.A. does, but talk to me a little bit more in detail.
2: So the district attorney makes all prosecuting decisions uh, with regards to criminal cases in New York City, everything from Who gets charged, what crimes get charged, whether someone's detained pretrial, you know, whether bail is set, what sentence gets sought, whether the person has an opportunity for treatment or whether they go to jail or prison. So the D.A. is so unbelievably powerful. And I know that firsthand from spending my career as a public defender.
0: So. Okay, how did being a public defender inform your desire to run for this office and what you would want to do when in office?
2: So I really anticipated being a public defender for life. It was the reason I went to law school. It was the only job I applied for. And I remember in my final round interview with the head of my office, the public defender's office here in Manhattan. he said to me all right eliza well it was so great to meet you let me know if you get other job offers and i said oh would that enhance my application and he said no no we just want to know if you're thinking about taking another job and i said okay in that case you should know there won't be any other job offers it was truly all my eggs one basket 100 percent committed i thought i would be a public defender forever and it was You know, the last almost dozen years of my life after representing thousands of people charged with crimes and seeing the cruel, unjust, racist way our criminal legal system operates, that is not keeping us safe that is wasting taxpayer money, that is over prosecuting and over incarcerating people for low level offenses. And meanwhile, not holding people accountable who are wealthy, powerful and well connected. And so I realized that I needed to make a change and to change the system, we have to change the DA. And so that's why I'm running.
0: So there's been, you know, a few progressive DA's um, around the country. I know that the idea that there could be like a progressive DA and that like from within the system it's actually not possible to, to change things, um, because you know the the institutions of our criminal justice system are you know just so uh, entrenched with with racism and um, that actually people really need to be shooting for abolition. Um, what's your response to that?
2: Well, you know, I think that, first of all, the criminal legal system is systemically racist. It just is and i think that for years people have tried to run as progressive prosecutors but even those people who have maybe uh, made some good changes oftentimes have not kept their campaign promises and remain the primary driver of mass incarceration of people of color so i think that if our criminal legal system is going to continue to exist continue to have a prosecutor's office then it's imperative that we elect people who are committed truly to decarceration who in an ideal world understand, as I do, that jails and prisons are not the answer to society's problems and who want to go in there and identify real concrete ways to limit the reach of the prosecutor's power. And so I think that, that yes, I, I know that I can't snap my fingers and tomorrow make it so that jails and prisons don't exist but I can stop sending people there for things that that really are the that the basis of which is something else that's it's a mental health issue it's a substance use disorder it's poverty it's homelessness and so I think that we need to in the interim you know elect people who are truly committed to making systemic changes
0: so what does that look like for you like in a, a- the day-to-day of, you know, let's say you win, you are the DA in Manhattan, Um, what does that mean, like, in terms of the choices that you would be making on a daily basis?
2: Well, amazingly, the DA has such broad-reaching power. So on day one of my administration, I could make determinations that will change the lives of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And I've put out, you know, substantial policies on my website, you know, Eliza But, But basically, you know, I've said that the overwhelming majority of misdemeanors are things that we simply don't need to be prosecuting, that we are prosecuting and it is not keeping our city safe. It's wasting unbelievable amounts of taxpayer money that could be actually put into things that would keep us safe um and we're detaining people pre-trial you know our jail is filled three quarters of our jail is filled with people who are there pre-trial they simply cannot afford to buy their freedom you know we say we have a presumption of innocence in this country that you are presumed innocent until proven guilty and yet that really only applies if you are wealthy enough to buy your freedom to pay your money bail and so i could say on day one which i would will say uh we're no longer going to ask for money bail, period. It's not keeping us safe. In fact, it's making people more dangerous because when you lock someone up for whether it be three months, three weeks, or even three days, that person becomes exponentially more likely to reoffend or get rearrested. So, you know, there are all these things that we've thought through and things that we could do um, starting from, from the first day of my administration that would really change lives.
0: That is, you know, so important right now because I've been thinking, especially, um, you know, in the pandemic, it's obviously been a horrible situation because you have people in jail who, you know, have not even been committed, convicted of a crime and are, you know, like potentially exposed to to COVID. And so people are getting a, a death sentence in some cases without ever being charged with anything.
2: Exactly, exactly. You know, COVID infection rates in our jails and prisons have been exponentially higher than anywhere else. Uh, you know, and that makes sense if you think about it, because the overwhelming, um, you know, they, these are extremely crowded. There's no ability to social distance. Uh, people don't have access to sufficient, you know, Soap. There are 30 to 40 people sharing a toilet. People are crowding into a mess hall, eating off dirty trays, shoulder to shoulder with one another without enough PPE. Um, people were being told at the beginning of the pandemic, sleep head to foot with your cellmate <laughs> so that you can be six feet apart, as opposed uh, to, you know, these beds are 18 inches apart. We, there's no ventilation at Rikers Island. You know, like this is, its it was outrageous. And so, even when New York City was at its worst, people were, um, uh, seeing infection rates as high as 10 times that of the rest of New York
1: City at Rikers Island.
0: Do you have questions, Julia?
1: How'd I you- do. Hello. Um, yeah, I. so Rikers has a particularly um, kind of imposing uh, reputation. And I just wanted to know what, are the conditions that uh, give it that sort of um, association in in the public's mind.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, Rikers is an absolute hellhole. I mean, it just is. And anyone who's ever been there knows that. Um, you know, it's a violation of, of human rights and human dignity. It's absolutely a terrible, terrible place. And it needs to close. Um, and the city has voted to close it. And, you know, that's supposed to happen in the next X number of years. I mean, they, they keep pushing it back um, and, and they want to spend 11 billion dollars of taxpayer money to build new borough based jails. Mm. And that's just I mean, there's no reason why we should be building additional facilities where we're going to incarcerate people. It's just, we need to be electing DAs who think about things other than incarceration as the default. You know, we really need to make sure that we're thinking about providing the help and services that people need rather than just saying, oh, we're going to lock people up. We're going to lock people up. We're going to cycle them back through and through and through. I mean, can you even imagine if you had like a auto plant or something like you're, you're, you're making, you know, you're putting out something and of everything you you put out, 75% of the cars came back to you, got returned to you, wouldn't somebody be like, oh, there's something wrong here? Yeah. Like, this is a problem. And, and yet we, you know, just continue to do the same thing over and over and over with our criminal legal system and just cycle people back through. Um, but the problem is that there are folks profiting off of the mass incarceration of human beings. So, you know, we got to dismantle the prison industrial complex
1: in addition. Right. And I mean, well, cash bail ties so well into that because, I mean, essentially it's it's ensuring that there are two different justice systems, one for the wealthy and one for the poor. Exactly. Um, and, you know, what, what have you seen as maybe some of the... Uh, some of the mistakes that past DAs have made and and in what ways do you think that the DA's office, um, you know, can, can be used for, for change, but, but has not been.
2: Oh my gosh, there are so many. I could talk your ear off for like (laughs) consecutive hours um, about that, but, but I think there are so many. And I think one of the ones that's really coming to the forefront right now is police accountability. It kind of comes to mind just given everything we've seen, um, you know, with the nationwide protests last summer that started and the the way in which the Black Lives Matter movement has taken off in a way that, um, you know, when we were out in the streets, I was there protesting Black Lives Matter. You know, I can't breathe after Eric Garner's murder in in 2013. But people weren't energized in the same way at that time people Mm. weren't ready for these conversations about about police brutality about racist policing and finally finally we're starting to see some movement on that but i think that what people fail to recognize sometimes in that conversation is the way in which the manhattan district attorney's office and district attorney's offices across the country have been complicit in the continuing misconduct of these police officers and and these police departments, because they've essentially used their power to shield and protect officers rather than holding them accountable. And, you know, as a public defender for my entire career, I've seen not just the, the physical violence in the streets, the police brutality that we've seen such horrifying videos of on social media, but I've seen, you know, false arrests and falsifying documents and perjury in the courthouse. Oh, yeah. You know, police officers literally walk into court. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. And then under oath, they lie. Mm -hmm. And the consequences of their lies are so massive. People can go to jail or prison for years or decades or their lives based on the testimony of a police officer. And even when it's found to have been a lie, there are no consequences. There are no repercussions. That person is oh, well, the case gets dismissed, but that person's back out on the street testifying and and arresting and falsifying documents or lying under oath about someone else the next day. And so, you know, as Manhattan DA, I'm really committed to um, you know holding police accountable, never tolerating misconduct of any kind, and establishing a dedicated unit that will actually prosecute police misconduct.
1: That's so great to hear, and um I think you're absolutely right uh in a you know in a a perfect city government, the mayor and d a should be a check on um we're getting know, this, some
0: kind of crazy sound in the background. I don't know if it's your headphones, me, yeah, yeah, oh I'm sorry, no worries my, um, it
1: might be my hair moving with the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, so can maybe start the question again, just sure so plain sound,
1: sure, um that's really great to hear. And and I think in a perfect city government, uh, you know, or just one, a functional city government, uh, the the mayor's office and the district attorney would be um, a check on the police departments for, for accountability in cases of misconduct. But as you have alluded to, both of those offices have very often um, protected bad police officers, which, uh, you know, That's the police union's job is to protect their bad officers. And I think it's uh, not that it's their job. That's obviously I'm saying that facetiously but
2: no I know but that's what they that is what that, they is, do. What they that do. is what they do it's like you know you want to laugh about it but unfortunately like the reality is they, they they do everything in their power to make sure that even when you know the CCRB which is the civilian complaint review board says oh there should be accountability for this officer because XYZ and they should lose a couple vacation days the union says no we reject that and have found ways around even the mildest of accountability measures.
1: And I think that it's so. Uh, you know, I've talked about this on different labor episodes that we've had. That basically all of the the major criticisms that are levied against teachers unions, um, you know, by the public, for whatever reason, police unions are spared of those associations. Like again, protecting bad officers. Teachers unions are always saying, you know, they're always of protecting bad teachers but the consequences for protecting a bad police officer is I would argue tenfold that of a uh of a bad teacher
0: um, those, like, imagine- a, those sex teachers though we have the, to get the sex out. teachers
1: are bad sure. <laughs> yeah. can, you ever,
2: can you imagine any other profession where you could kill someone at work and maintain your job not even lose your pension or your vacation days. I mean, can you even fathom uh, a
1: situation like that? I mean, if it's, Where you, it's- you kill someone and you're immediately put on paid administrative leave,
0: I think we should actually, we definitely well, took need five to- years to even, yeah, put- yeah. we should, uh- I think, obviously eliminate the ability of police to do that, but we should give the ability to do that to customer service you piss someone off if you're not being polite if you're a bad tipper you you should not you know know in advance if that could result in your loss of life
1: that's in that's in kate's new york yes Uh, um no we know that you 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 would not endorse that that's fine i was Um, like uh, listen we're talking about decarceration yeah i'm not not trying to i'm like we're not I trying know. to back you into no a corner. And get Someone's like, however, for you know, jail for bad tippers. No, I'm I'm obviously joking. <laughs> that's yeah, that's my America. Jail for bad tippers. Um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. You you know, I, I've seen the the inner workings of uh police unions up close. Um, my you know, my father was a was a police officer, and I think that i have a particular uh i have a you know a whole host of particular bones to pick with uh with police uh just having you know having grown up along alongside them cannot recommend anyone be raised by a cop just want to say that again uh for our listeners at home uh i've said it before and boy is it still true uh would never recommend anyone have a cop dad but uh yeah i I think that what we've seen, you know, you, you're exactly right. That in 2013, you know, during the the Eric Garner and later the Mike Brown protests um, that came about because of both of those unjust deaths, we, you know, that was just the the tip of the iceberg. I just think that people. I think that it's reached a full a full boiling point now. Hey, Julia,
0: we're getting that sound again, and it's just yeah. I'm
1: sorry. Uh, yeah, I think you're completely correct in that. Uh, 2013 people were not as mobilized and motivated as as they are now, but it's just become too too big to ignore the the idea of that police are not being held accountable and that there is no really no check on them um and you know you have all of these structures of government not just their own unions but all of these other government offices lining up to protect them um and it doesn't make anyone's city safer uh it doesn't,
2: Exactly. And I think that's the thing that we really need to emphasize, because I feel like they have such a good propaganda campaign where they say, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, you're going to be in danger. You're going to be in danger. You're going to be in danger. And the reality is the way in which we keep our public safe is by investing in communities, exactly, by making sure that people have the the resources they need to you know take care of their their basic human needs for too long we've 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 spent billions of our city budgets or New York state budgets on policing, on surveillance, on punishment, on incarceration, on all of those things, instead of fostering, you know, equitable and healthy and safe communities and criminalized addiction and mental health issues. And mass incarceration does not provide public safety. We've been sold this false choice between public safety and incarceration or public safety in a punitive criminal legal system. And that's really not true. It's not what's keeping us safe. You know, the money should be put into social services for mental health issues and, you know, homelessness, we should be funding schools and hospitals and housing and things that actually would help keep our communities safe.
1: Yeah, it's that old adage of the uh, the communities, the safest communities are not the ones with the most police officers, they're the ones with the most resources. Uh, and that's absolutely true. You know, if you look at the you know, a lot of like the safest towns in America, there is a direct correlation. Those are the wealthiest towns. Those are the towns where the tax money is um, funneled right back in a lot of social programs and schools and uh, of the like. But, and that's why I think it's, you know, one of the, one of the many reasons why I have been so frustrated at uh, particularly Governor Cuomo's Refusal to tax <laughs> the wealthiest New Yorkers um, when so many of our our public institutions uh, here in the city are just like in dire need of funding. Um, but he is always willing. He does always seem to be able to make money uh, up here for uh, Neapolio as well for the police. Um, <laughs> Yeah.
2: And the new if you saw the new um, controller's report, which said that it costs twelve hundred and sixty six dollars a night of New York City taxpayer money to put someone at Rikers Island. That's more than the Ritz Carlton. Yeah, that's more than the plaza. You know, that's that's wow. a wild amount of money for one night. So it's over four hundred and seventy seven thousand dollars a year to put someone at Rikers Island for the year. And meanwhile, you could buy them a home, you could do, I mean, think about all the things that we could be doing with that money. And for a fraction of that money, we could be providing services to people. We could be keeping people in their homes to continue to go to work, to provide for their families, as opposed to ripping families apart, destroying communities and lives, and then saddling people with criminal records who then can't get a job, can't get housing, can't get loans, you know, and and that's something that impacts them for the rest of their lives.
1: I could not agree more. And I think that what's really interesting and encouraging about you and uh, and other public defenders running for uh, district attorney is that it kind of just wasn't done very, uh, you know, in, up until very recently. Um, ordinarily, district attorneys, uh, the pipeline to become district attorney often involved uh, being a prosecutor. Yep. And uh, it was kind of almost unheard of for a district uh, for a, a public defender to become district attorney uh, again until till rather recently and then you've had some some major wins on that front. I'm thinking of the the one that immediately comes to mind is Larry Krasner in uh, Philadelphia.
2: Yep Chase of Boudin in San Francisco yeah mm-hmm. um, you know, there are definitely some examples of it now. And this just goes to show how much the rhetoric has changed, how much people are actually coming to a reckoning with what it means to have prosecutorial experience in the United States. You know, so many people are like, yes, it was the prosecutor to D.A. pipeline like you you had to be a career prosecutor in order yeah. to become D.A. But but the reality is now people are saying, oh, wow this is a person who has played an active role in upholding this cruel unjust. Yeah, exactly. This is someone who held a position of power in an organization while it violated human rights and human dignity. And, you know, what I've seen every single day of my career is the way in which prosecutors have treated my clients in cruel, inhumane ways. And finally, finally, our country is acknowledging that. And it has taken far too long to acknowledge, you know, it's always been cruel and inhumane and wrong. Um, and so now the thing that I tend to say, you know, when I'm in a friendly crowd is is we can't trust the arsonist to put out the fire. Exactly. Why should yeah. we put a career prosecutor in a position to make these desperately needed reforms?
1: Right. Yeah. How can you expect um, a career prosecutor who has spent their career up until then defending the the new york city police department if you like uh to implement police reform it's completely nonsensical and i i also think that you know i would love to see more i would just love to see more resources given to public defenders uh and that's something that has been in you know in every major city in this country, it's a huge uh, problem that you know public defenders, I'm sure I don't have to tell you this twice, are uh, overworked and underpaid, and their caseload is unmanageable. Um, is there any latitude that the the district attorney's office uh, has with with public defenders in in terms of that, or is that more of like a state is that more at the uh, at the gubernatorial level?
2: So the funding for public defenders comes from the city and the state. And so it certainly pay parity is something we've been fighting for for a really long time. And it was so heartening to hear Joe Biden, you know, our president say we should be public paying public defenders the same as prosecutors. I mean, because that should be such a no brainer. That should be such an, an obvious thing. But for far too long, public defenders have been far too underpaid and overworked and way too many cases at any given time. And, and it's, it's, it's not right. And so, yes, the DA doesn't have the ability to say, I will allocate funding because that's just not what the DA can do. But, you know, they'd have an ally in the DA's office. They'd have someone Mm -hmm. saying from that like massive bully pulpit of the DA's office saying public defenders should be getting the same pay. And furthermore, By not bringing all of these low level, you know, cases that really should never be coming through our criminal legal system to begin with, that would lessen the burden on the public defender's office and and they wouldn't necessarily need to, you know, have 100 cases per person it could be a much smaller number um because the cases that we'd be bringing are serious cases rather than just you know personal possession of drugs all of these cases that should never be cycling through the system to begin with
0: so what like what's your standard for what kind of case should be brought? like I, obviously you said, personal possession of drugs. Like, what's your criteria for what sorts of cases you would bring?
2: Well, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a really important question because I think that, that there are so many things that really, you know, when when we talk about what I don't want to prosecute, it doesn't necessarily address what I do think should be prosecuted, and I think that that for far too long, you know, the. People who are perpetrating real harm on New Yorkers, on our communities, on our city are not being held accountable. Um, You know, it's it's so um, it's been so based on your wealth, your power, your connections, your privilege. That means that you would not get prosecuted and the Manhattan DA's office has really, you know, for far too long, given a path to the people who who have those connections. So if you think about the fact that in 2012 and 2013, Manhattan D.A. Cy Vance could have but chose not to declined to prosecute the Trumps. Yep. And had he brought those prosecutions back then and exposed all of the fraud that they were engaging in and, you know, put that all out in the public, we may never have had a President Donald J. Trump. And, you know, not to say that there was any one factor that did it. There are so many things, but. No, but there is there is a direct line between those two. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that that, you know, prosecuting people like Donald Trump, people like the the Jared Kushner's, the Ivanka Trump's of the world who have far too long gotten away with everything hell had no accountability for their actions you know that's something that that would end under my tenure um you know prosecuting bad cops as we talked about and you know prosecuting bad landlords there are so many landlords out there especially here in new york who are who are really um who are really breaking the law and yeah. they're not being held accountable they're hurting everyday new yorkers who are just trying to exist trying to be able to pay their rent to 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 house their family and they're not being held accountable. And then also there are people out there who are abusing workers. You know, there are people out there who are who are violating minimum wage laws, who are maintaining unsafe conditions for their workers or who are retaliating against their workers for making complaints or who are sexually abusing their workers at work. And those people are not being held accountable. And and the people who are the victims in all of these cases, you know, the people who are subjected to the most police violence, to abuse by their landlords, to abuse by their employers, These are all the same people that I've been representing. You know, it's like it's 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 predominantly lower income folks. It's people of color. It's it's immigrants. It's people who are LGBTQIA. It's people with disabilities. And these are the exact same people who are being hurt by our criminal legal system. So instead, if we protect them in the same way that not prosecuting, say, drug possession would protect them because they're over they're disproportionately targeted for those offenses, it would continue to, you know, it, it really all like falls in line with this broader view of 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 standing up for the most marginalized New Yorkers.
0: So, what's your position on sex work?
2: Oh, well, I'm so glad you asked because <laughs> I've been a very outspoken advocate um, for the full decriminalization of sex work for, you know, for for long before it was popular to use the phrase "sex work is work" or before anybody even really fully knew what decrim was. And I'm so glad that this is a conversation that's coming to the forefront. Um, You know, I am running against someone who, you know, is is basically saying that we should have the Nordic model of of decriminalization of sex work, which is this prohibitionist model which says, oh, yeah, let's not prosecute the sex workers, but we're going to continue to prosecute people who purchase sex. So, I mean, can you imagine a situation where you're told it's not illegal to be a to be a a hairdresser, but if anyone pays you to get their hair cut, we're going to arrest those people. Can you imagine that you would be safe at work? You you wouldn't, you know, that anybody would let you do your job in their building that anyone would ever come to you or that people would use their real names when they come to you. You know, there'd be so many things that would put your job in danger. Your job is not legal if people who are buying from you are made to be criminalized. So the only only way we're going to keep people safe is by um, decriminalizing all consensual sex work. And that means that we need to protect people right now the way that this criminalization works is it it makes everyone less safe mm-hmm. you know sex workers are, are put in danger of not only police violence but the inability to report when they're victims of sexual assault or robbery or anything because they're afraid of arrest and prosecution um you know they're not able to access health care they they you know they have um they have inability to access housing and other things. They're unbanked. I mean, there's so many different things that, that are so, that are such a risk to them that put people in danger. And by the way, disproportionately targeting, you know, trans women of color, disproportionately targeting, um, you know, people of color, LGBTQIA folks. And, and this is a, so this is not just a gender justice issue or an LGBTQIA justice issue, but it's an economic justice issue. It's it's this very intersectional issue that we really need to be um talking about. Um, and and I think that you know it's really important that we call out the folks who are these like essentially you know they 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 are these carceral feminists who come in and say oh i'm going to protect you because you couldn't possibly be engaging in consensual sex work mm-hmm. and and as, you know i i think about this this opponent of mine her name's Tolly Farhadian Weinstein and she specifically thinks that we need to oh every sex worker is a victim and so we need to protect them we need to go in there and make sure that that oh we're not criminalizing them we're we're going to protect them and then, meanwhile, making their lives more dangerous, pushing, pu- making their lives more dangerous, pushing them further underground.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's terrible. The cops showing up at your work all the time is not yeah. going to make your workplace safer. Um,
2: exactly. Meanwhile. Exactly. And so- I mean, the, the vice squad is like, you know, has been there, there's a huge pro Publica report out about how the vice squad is so dangerous and damaging and how it gives um you know the the cops so much power it led to the death of a of a young woman in queens yang song i don't know if you know her story but basically she'd been subjected to police harassment and brutality and sexual violence and they came to raid um the massage parlor uh that she was working at in queens and she subsequently fell to or jumped to her death um from the from the balcony um
0: that's so fucking sad and I mean I just when we're having this conversation one thing that I was thinking about is like you know I was very excited about uh, Tiffany Caban's run and I just you know seeing the way that like uh, Cuomo pretty much sabotaged that like I don't know if folks remember but basically there was through you know some loopholes they were some ballots were not counted, and um, you know it, the the New York political machine really put their finger on the scale um, against any kinds of positive reform. And I'm wondering if you were worried that something similar could happen to you. Are you feeling the um, strong opposition of the New York political machine and Cuomo's
2: Uh, Well, he is thankfully under some of his own fire at the moment, so he, I think, is paying less attention to the Manhattan district attorney race than he otherwise might. Uh, But yeah, I'm listen, I'm running a. an insurgent upstart campaign, uh, you know, we're fully grassroots funded. Like this is, I'm running the only grassroots campaign for Manhattan DA. I'm the only person who even has an an average contribution under a hundred dollars, let alone, I think ours is under 80 and no one else is even under one hundred and fifty. Like it's, you know, these are the, the max donation in my race is over $35,000 per individual donor, which is absolutely wild. And it does the same thing our criminal legal system does, which is maintain the status quo, keep those who have wealth and power and privilege and connections in power. You know, this is something that we are we're going to definitely come up against. But but right now, like we have the we have the people behind us. We have thousands and thousands of individual contributions. As of the last filing um, in January, we had over 7,300 individual contributions, um, which is like more than double the next person, Um, thousands more small dollar contributions than anyone. And and so it really feels like we're building like this people powered movement that is definitely going to, you know, it's going to propel us to victory. The problem, of course, is that some of my opponents who would be responsible as Manhattan DA for holding Wall Street accountable are racking up these big donations from Wall Street um, and, and from former Trump donors and Ted Cruz donors and Josh Hawley donors, you know, specifically this woman, Miss Miss Barhadian Weinstein, ha- has raised over $1.4 million from 75 people. Jesus. And so these are the people who should be responsible for holding accountable. And it yeah. should be very concerning to all New Yorkers that that's the person who might become the next DA.
0: So I just want to pause just for a moment here and just fully like let in how pathetic the phrase Ted Cruz donor is like, what point have you reached in your life <laughs> that you're donating to Ted Cruz? <clears throat> so let's just take m- a second with that. And then, you know, uh, I I just, when you're talking, I was thinking about like, you know, this is, this could be a position that were you elected, like has the possibility to really change the way that financial crimes are prosecuted in the United States, because you know, obviously New York, Wall Street, it's a center of so much. And so, you know, we might see some very, very, very high profile cases. Um, Is that like part of what excites you about running for this office in Manhattan specifically.
2: Well, yeah, I mean listen, the Manhattan DA's office has so much power not just in the fact that Wall Street is in Manhattan that we would make these, you know, these decisions that would have huge not just national impact, but potentially, I mean if you think about the the, the past president, like international impact, worldwide impact. And so, you know, I think that it's it's something that, yes, it's very exciting to think about the way in which not only um, would I would I have that that power to make these decisions, but to set policy, to set policy that that would then be looked at, you know, if we can decriminalize sex work here in Manhattan and people say, oh wow, it's not like, brothels popping up across Manhattan because people say, oh, sex tourism would rise. It's just, that's a fallacy. It's just simply not true. We don't see that in places where it's decriminalized. And and in fact, like, then we can set policy and then people could say, oh, wow, it's happening in New York and look how well New York's doing. And look, people are safer and look, people have their needs met. And so we would be exporting these like really good policies instead of, you know, the the really problematic ones.
1: I think a lot of people are still, uh, you know feel the the ire and disappointment that basically no one who was involved in creating the 08 financial crisis uh, did like barely even had a day in court uh,
2: that's actually interesting Interesting that you say that, you know, the only criminal prosecution that was brought after that financial crisis was uh, by Manhattan D.A. Vance. And it was against this Chinese family owned bank called Abacus Bank. I remember this. Have you seen the documentary? No. Well, there's a documentary about it. And I, um, I can't recommend it highly enough because it is absolutely it will break your heart. It's devastating. And what he did to this family was the most racist it was the most like it was just this targeted prosecution he saw this this chinese family on bank as like low hanging fruit and was like oh i can just i can be the only person to 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 hold people criminally accountable for for being um you know for this for this financial crisis and they had to spend Millions, I think it was ten million dollars of their own money, and I'm spoiler alert, but you know he, they took it all the way to trial because they were able to, and they had lawyers in the family, et cetera, and and fought so hard, and were fully acquitted of every single charge. But but Cy Vance, this prosecution was just—it was absolutely shameful. Um, the the documentary is called Small Enough to Jail, and um, it—I mean, it'll just—it'll break your heart.
1: Well, I mean, and to, to your point earlier about who the district attorney answers to in terms of their donors, you know, it wasn't just the Trumps that Cy Vance decided not to prosecute. Uh, he decided he decided not to prosecute Harvey Weinstein. Uh, he like. It's very clear who his allies were he and, argued uh,
2: for leniency for Jeffrey Epstein.
1: I mean wow. Yeah. <laughs> His, There's nothing to be said to that. What yeah. a guy. <laughs> I I just think that, you know, especially in a in a city like this where basically all of the major financial crimes take place in america you know you need someone who isn't in the pocket of uh corporate interests and of these these nefarious actors you know you like bernie madoff's crimes didn't just affect new york they were international
0: well um we do we do have some crimes in california financial crimes that kamala harris chose not to prosecute <laughs> yeah. but yeah i hear you yeah yeah no no no
1: no 100 I, <laughs> yeah.
0: I i just mean that
1: i mean it's so it's so funny to see the two to see uh, uh to see uh biden in harris now and, and uh, you know it, it it's encouraging to me as you said that that joe biden is advocating that public defenders uh get pay equity with prosecutors, I think that's, I mean, that's something that should have happened from the beginning. For sure. Um, and it, you know, it's, it harkens back to the, the famous moment in, uh, in the primary debates where, uh, when, when uh, Kamala called out uh, Joe Biden for some of his past policies, and then he said, I was a public defender, I was never a prosecutor. which was one of the just a very a funny a funny little moment between the two of them who both have become in in their own right uh faces of uh democratic support for mass incarceration
0: (laughs) and that and that little prosecutor was was me
1: yeah True, true, true.
0: You're like, um, I am running for office. <laughs> Please yeah. don't say anything.
1: I'm so sorry. I'm so no, sorry no, that no, we're no, doing no, this. No, 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 no.
2: It's, listen, I think that there, things have changed a lot. And I'm like, actually have been so heartened to see that, you know, I mean, they campaigned, they both campaigned on ending cash bail. And, I hope that, you know, I know there's a lot of pressure. There's so many things that they can be doing. Um, they can end the death penalty. I mean, if you think about that horrific killing spree that Trump went on post election, um, just to execute as many people as, as he could before Biden's inauguration. I mean, that was absolutely horrifying. Um, and, and I hope that, I hope that there will be a lot of pressure for these for these real criminal justice reforms um, on on Biden to sign off on. There are things he can do right now that don't require any approval that, you know, that don't require anyone to vote on them. And and I hope that he will.
0: Well, I mean, he threw out the amazing idea of uh, cops shooting people in the leg. Um, he is crushing it with
1: Uh, the criminal justice
0: reform. Um, so, you know, I guess like one of the things that we've all really seen in the past year is just like how in bed the, uh, New York mayor's office is with the NYPD and you know, I, I just, I mean, it's like, there was part of me, like, obviously, I was really angry at de Blasio, but I was also, like, really embarrassed for de Blasio that they're, like, throwing his own daughter in jail and he's, like, so pathetically, um, you know, <laughs> sucking up to the NYPD to, like... Yeah, and
2: the, tweeting out her yeah. private information. Yeah,
0: no, it was horrible. But, horrible. like, I, I guess, like, I mean, we don't know who the next mayor is going to be, but I, I'm guessing that it, it will be neolib. And it seems to me very likely that the NYPD will hold a huge influence over uh, that mayor's office as well. Um, To what extent are you concerned that the mayor's office would be an obstacle to uh, any reforms?
2: Well, listen, I, I truly hope that as district attorney, I will have an ally in the mayor's office who will also be committed to, um, you know, to, to bringing real reforms to New York City. But regardless of whether or not I do, they they won't be an obstacle because I, on my own, will be able to hold the police accountable. Like there's just... There's no, there's no, oh, like, can you do it without the permission of the mayor? Of course you can. Like, as district attorney, I will be able to hold the police accountable, to prosecute police officers, to bring criminal charges against them. And if they want to engage in a slowdown, for example, like they did when they were mad at de Blasio, um, you know what happened during that slowdown, by the way? I was, you know, working as a public defender. So I was going to night court and seeing, you know, all the cases that come through. Crime went down. Crime rates went down. So they stopped arresting people for low level B.S. crimes and overall crime rates decreased. Mm-hmm. So we make our city safer by not making those types of arrests. And I hope that the police will you know, be on board with that. Let's stop asking them to punish sex work. Let's stop asking them to, to, to go arrest people who are in the throes of a mental health crisis. I think for the most part, they don't want to do that. I think that they're untrained to do so. They're coming in armed. Oftentimes those situations escalate. Um, and, and I hope that then, you know, the next police commissioner, the next whomever will, will say, oh, yeah, well, this is good. Like, you know, police don't want to be social workers. They're not social workers. Let's stop asking them to do that. That'll be a good thing. But, you know, the overwhelming hostility that they've shown to even the mildest of reforms and accountability measures means that the next DA is going to really need to decide Um whether they want to prioritize, oh, like, can I offend, I'm going to offend the police if I do this thing, or whether we're going to hold them accountable. And like, for me, it's not even a question. You know, they right. must be held accountable.
0: I completely agree. And I am an abolitionist myself, but I do think uh, that I have to admit that it would be funny if Rikers was full of cops. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't want um, it to exist, <laughs>
1: but it would be funny. Um, um, I And I, you know, de blasio has had such an interesting (laughs) to put it uh poorly an interesting relationship with the police uh they you know he has you know he's been very kind of deferential to them uh in in recent years kind of sickeningly so at times, but I feel like that has happened. That trajectory has happened because they went absolutely ballistic when he he said, you know, because he has a black son, he said, um, like my son doesn't feel safe around police. And that just such an inane kind of like innocuous comment based in a lot of fact uh was enough to really put the full weight of the new york city police department against him i remember they like they turned around they turned their backs on him Mm -hmm. uh during uh a funeral during a funeral yeah um and so it's i think that shows that whether you're on their quote unquote good side or not is kind of irrelevant. They're still going to, you know, because there's no accountability, there's no real accountability for them. They're still going to behave the way that they're going to behave.
2: Right. And so, you know, we need, we need elected officials who are going to stand up to them.
0: Well, it has really been a pleasure talking with you. Let's kind of get into your campaign for a second and how people can get involved if they were into what you have to say, uh, if they, you know, want to prosecute the pigs. You know, uh, (laughs) I'm in favor of, uh, I I definitely, I definitely, definitely would like to see you succeed and for other folks who are um, interested in getting involved, how could they do so?
2: So people can get involved at elizaorleans.com. E L I Z A last name O R L I N S dot com, and we, as I said before, we are a grassroots movement. So truly, we're we're funded by people who are like, okay. I can make it work to do a $5 recurring contribution monthly. I can I can give $25 here, $50 there. I can buy a pink t-shirt for $25. You know, the, we are funded by the people truly. And that's why I'm going to be accountable to the people. And so if people can make donations, that is amazing. We're so grateful for every dollar that we receive. Um, and also for people's time. We're doing weekly text banks and phone banks and friend banks. And we're out in the streets for the next six days petitioning still. You know, we have... Uh, tons of volunteer opportunities so people can sign up to volunteer, join us. Um, A lot of our volunteer activities are on Zoom these days because that's how everybody gathers. So you can get involved from anywhere and we would be so grateful for for that kind of support too because we're going to be able to do this because we have all these volunteers, because we're reaching more voters with our message and because people are really ready to see this kind of change come to New York.
0: Awesome. Well Eliza, it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Where can people follow you on social media?
2: Um, I'm on Twitter at Eliza Orleans, on Instagram at EOrleans. um, my Facebook is Eliza Orleans for F O R N Y. Uh I'm on, I don't know, TikTok except I'm not very good there. I don't know. So, but yeah, Eliza Orleans basically every research for me. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been so much fun chatting with both of you. This has been so wonderful.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
2: Really appreciate it.
1: Good luck. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash reply guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Framgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel.